Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Pods <laughs> Sorry. podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is an old friend, old in the sense we've known one another a long time, but young, and that is... Robin Anderson. And Robin, it's an incredible privilege and a joy to see you and to see all those books and what might almost be videotapes in the background in your bookcase. Right. And they are some videotapes. I used to go to the World Cinema class and I have, nobody wanted to kind of teach it, so I had to take all these DVDs home of fantastic international films. <laughs> Coolio. So I wanted to ask you as a starting point, what they say in game shows in Britain is, Professor Anderson, your starter for 10, you know, potential points. Professor Anderson, your starter for 10 is this. Tell us, if you would, Robin, about what's on your mind these days, what you're thinking about, what's dynamizing you, what's troubling you, what's exciting you, whatever it might be. Well, it's exciting because my partner's sister's coming into town. We haven't oh. seen her from the UK, her and her husband, from a, for a very long time. Ah. She's involved in Extinction Rebellion and has been... Mm. Um, arrested numerous times. One time she was sitting on a curb um, having some tea and biscuits before they, they arrested her. They're very well, organized. Yeah, that's that's a crime in Britain today. Yes, I know. I know. Uh, we have a lot of protests going on in New York City, too, some of which I've been involved in. Um, so Jewish Voice for Peace uh, decided we can't have business as usual when there's a genocide being carried out in mm. Gaza. And so um they have in they have blocked done things like closed down Grand Central Terminal and um I was with them I I I hastened to uh to admit when we blocked the Manhattan Bridge. Um and it was actually very exciting. And what I can tell you is these young people, with a lot of help from their elders, they really know what they're doing. They're so dedicated. Mm. It resulted in such great media coverage. Uh, and New York Magazine had a, a big front page article about how being anti-Zionist is no longer and can't be considered anti-Semitic. And, and that's largely that kind of activism that's moving that spectrum over. Wow. For people perhaps outside the U.S. who are listening, can you tell us a little bit about Jewish Voice for Peace? Yes. Well, they've been around for a long time and there are several organizations. There's one called the Elders. There's If Not Now, uh, Not In Our Name. So a lot of these coalitions are coming together and they are they're just very well crafted the way they carry out events, the way they have young people that are that are dancing around and 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 exciting people to 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 do slogans and to, you know, sing for peace and things like that. And um, they just have done so much to insert their voices into the a public space, into the public sphere, which which has proven to be so essential um, now. And they were the ones right away, of course, who called for a ceasefire in Gaza. It's one of those things where, as you say, there is the opposition to Israel's operations in Gaza being deemed anti-Semitic. 
but there's also the figure of the self-hating Jew that is tossed out all the time for anybody who dissents from a kind of IDF slash Netanyahu line, right? That's right. And what what they, uh, you know, very profoundly assert is that we do we are not self-hating Jews. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is and, such a and big... it's a really it's a oh it's an inclusive, very humanitarian message that mm. they say. Mm. Um and in fact, in in New York in general, many of the of the NGOs and Center for Constitutional Rights, they started right out and they said, "We don't approve of what Hamas did. This is terrible. Um, civilians were killed, and we don't approve of that. Um, and so we would like to condemn that." And and as you know, as the narrative for October seventh has been has been designed, it's it's always. Everything that Israel has done subsequently, um, and even media had to had to report it this way. You always have to say that this is in response to October seventh and the Hamas attack, and so um, so you have that. And then now you, now we're up to twenty thousand dead Gazans, ten thousand children. I mean, I, I we can go over it. More more humanitarian uh, and UN and doctors have been killed there since the entire founding of um, the United Nations in that amount of time. And, and, 90 yeah. journalists have been killed more than the Center for Constitutional Rights has ever recorded. Um, it's it's a massacre. I mean, looking at the, the story, the number of media workers killed between the Battle of DNB and Fu and the gringos running away from Saigon, i.e. 20 years, is well below the number of media workers killed since October the 7th. A few of whom are Israeli, but not many. And as yeah. you know, Robin, for years, tragically, the killing field for journalists has been Latin America, and it doesn't even rate him in numbers now. Right. Well, uh, I just finished a book uh, titled that, that's going to come out in March, actually, and it's called Censorship, Digital Media and the Global Crackdown on Freedom of Expression. And we document journalists killed and we have one colleague uh, writing from the new NAM and he talked about how dangerous it is in Mexico um, because of silenced zones and because of the coli the, the real um collaboration, if you will, between uh, the drug lords and many of the uh, local localized uh, government officials who allow them to do what they want. And it so the killing of journalists in Mexico was the was when we when the book went to print at the end of last year um, mm -hmm. was more than any um, journalist, no, more than the number of any journalists killed in a war zone. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's for for a whole lot of reasons. Journalists are being killed, but we know why they're being killed. They're bearing witness and, and, and providing visuals of what's going on in Gaza. And yeah. they're the vast majority are Palestinians. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I what's on my mind is is I, I'm. I just heard that Institute for Palestine Studies is going to be publishing the book that I'm writing about the media coverage of Gaza. So I'm kind of excited about that. And they're going to do it in conjunction with Or Books, which is a local independent press in Manhattan. So it's a o OR Books. Um, so that's what's on my mind. I'm kind of very immersed in that. But, um, you know, I've been writing about this topic on and off through my entire career. And yeah. 
I can only do it for so long, though, at, at, a, at a stretch, you know. Um, the book that came out called The Century of Media, A Century of War, um, I ended it at the, cent the end of the century was the 20th century. And I thought, OK, well, I wanted to do this. Maybe the 21st century will be more peaceful. But no, <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Look, I'm still getting over the fact that I thought when Jimmy Carter won the 1976 election that there would never be another Republican administration in my life. So history doesn't it uh now robin something you said to me before we started recording was that you've been retired for a little while but you've probably never published as much or or done as much outside teaching and administration as in those last few years you're unstoppable and some of this is, I guess, a, a liberation after retirement, and some of it is about the political urgency of the current conjuncture. Have I got that right? You do. You do. Um, when the humanitarian crisis of the Syrian refugees uh, was in the news in 2016 after the Syrian war, um, I well, actually, I was a, I was approached by a wonderful editor at Routledge. Uh, her name was Emma, and she, and I actually had pitched a book about television tour, and she said, "Well, no, I don't want that book, but why don't you publish something about uh, what you think about hu humanitarian uh, action and the media?" So that led to um, to a Routledge companion uh, about media and, and humanitarian action, and. It came out in 2018, and subsequently the uh, we did a focus book series, and we've done a few books on that, and it covers a, a broad range of topics, um, from how how uh, things how the refugees are covered, um, how some of the NGOs design their media campaigns. Um, I, we had a, a documentarian, a, a doctor at the at, at at Fordham University, and he was very much involved in humanitarian action. And so uh, his his documentary, I wrote about his documentary in and in, in the uh, in the companion. And many people talked about what it's like to work in that in that field, in the field of humanitarian action, how hard it is to to. Um, communicate with donors and raise funds and, and design media campaigns and all that stuff. It's fascinating. So that's that's what we did. And, and then it seems like so much of the pr humanitarian principles of, 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 you know, the the whole body of work that that was developed after World War Two about um, how 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 not to carry out wars that are so devastating and to follow international rules of war and to follow humanitarian law. Uh, you know, we have the, uh, the international criminal court, we have the Geneva conventions, we have the, the, uh, rip, the convention against genocide and, and to watch what's happening in the 21st century and, and to see how I think I would have to say that America has really been on the, on the front lines of rolling all of, all of that stuff back. And I think, Gaza amounts to that um but that's that well you know tell me to answer you actually the way you framed the question I, I've been quoting Steve Earle and people ask Steve Earle Steve why 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 do you always write all these political songs and and Steve Earle said you know I would just like to write 
girl songs and love songs too. <laughs> it's in such a state that I just can't. <laughs> but actually, I did take some time out and I wrote a book about paradise. Let's call it my paradise book. Um, and it it has on the cover a very interesting. Uh, image that maybe we can talk a little bit about covers um it's about a bbc series called death in paradise and it's uh it's it's a it's an agatha christie kind of format it follows that agatha christie narrative if you've got but it's but in much more beautiful place <laughs> in a much more beautiful place in <laughs> in the on the island of guadalupe in the lesser antilles um so of course i went there <laughs> and watched him film it and uh and wrote a book that um that i call my paradise book because it gave me an opportunity to look back actually historically and see when exactly did we as human beings start writing about paradise well one thing i could tell you is it's the opposite of war <laughs> absolutely from the start but also um paradise is was one of the first concepts that we came up with when we started uh writing so the cuneiform script uh, tablets with the with the script that are etched into the tablets talks about paradise and those are the first written documents that we have that we can then you know we can so many years later look back and 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 decipher um and yep we started writing about paradise in mesopotamia one of the things about that series is that it's a sort of French-British co-production, isn't it? There are some wonderful and much more beautiful French actors and actresses than the Brits. Right. But the Brits are all fish out of water, aren't they? They're sort of Noel Coward figures, whether they're Irish or British, whether they're short or tall, whether they're dumpy or cute. They actually don't really cope with all this heat and these damn insects and funny frogs and things that run around. <laughs> no? Right, right. Well, you know, the, the de detectives, the, so the, the primarily British, British detectives, so there's been four. Um, you can't count the other one because he was only on long enough to last for one season so the new detective could come in. Um, they are... They, there are a lot of guest actors. Everybody in the in the UK really kind of wants to wants to jump down to the island, you know, you know, go across. Yeah, the well, I mean, I'm sure they here. shoot in winter in the northern hemisphere, right? That's right. <laughs> um, but the people who stay down there, it's I can tell you from watching how it's done, it's very hard work. You know, you mm. you film in rain or shine. It's hot. You know, you can't have an air conditioner. And they're, you know, they'll they'll practice with their t-shirts on, and then they put their their uniforms on, and just this tape long enough to, to so they before they start really sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered that about why there aren't any sweat marks in the, on their police uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> they're always kind of crisp. Uh, but what one thing that attracted me to it was the fact that the vast majority of actors on the show are Afro Caribbean. Yeah, right. Or yeah. there are British actors that are have African heritage or Jamaican heritage, um, and the the single British uh, detective, it, though he looks like the boss, 
you know, my take on the show, uh, and we don't, I, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if, if any of your readers watch it, so we, we probably shouldn't take, we probably shouldn't talk about it for too long, but there's one, the police captain is portrayed by Don Warrington, who, who broke the color barrier in the UK on Rising Damp when he played Philip, this, this, this black character, and, um, Don Warrington told me that even when he's walking down the street these days, and that was in the mid seventies, that people will say, "You're from Rising Damp, right?" And uh, now and talk about a figure not. who dominates the screen. He dominates. And, the screen. I mean, every scene he's in, even if he's in the background, right? Just look at him and wait right. for his view because he has right. the most expressive face of any actor I've ever seen. It's really true. And he's he's a magnificent presence on the show and on the camera. And his his part could easily have been stereotyped, but he doesn't allow it to be stereotyped. He does everything. He's the doting uncle. He's the he's the stern commander. He's (laughs) he's Camille's best friend. He's (laughs) he's he's in in a love relationship for a little while. It's amazing. And he can be hypocritical, but always charming, I think is the, the big thing about him. So I haven't, I didn't know you'd written this book. I will get it without a doubt because I actually do love the series and I think it walks the edge of colonialism very successfully, very successfully. Well, thank you. I, I have a whole chapter where I challenge that, the, of course, it's been panned in the UK press. They, it's kind of this consensus where they make fun of it and, oh, this is our little bit of fluff in, in the wintertime and, uh, and and we don't take it seriously. And so I'm kind of arguing the book, uh, we should take it seriously um, mm-hmm. as it offers a kind of an alternative atmosphere and actually a very humane type of atmosphere. And it stands quite a distinction from all of the the dark detective series where everybody's trampling all, of, all over their everybody's humanity and the, and the you know, it, 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 the the line between the police officers and the and the and the the criminals blurs all the time. Um, and anyway, it's um, I think it's a fascinating series. So, along with your media and humanitarian issues edited collection and series, this book, in a way is a bit different from the sort of trajectory that you come from, Robin. Right. Which is not dissimilar to my own trajectory, where, you know, the media are all bastards and there's nothing good and the whole world is fucked. Uh, The sort of pessimism of international political economy, of communications, with all its incredible analytical tools, you're finding not just fragments, but important elements that, a shining lights, not just in a sense, hiding things, concealing things, denying things, as well as maintaining your critical edge. Right. Well, you know, if we go back to how I started, like thinking about how you started too, in this very critical space, um, I went to Central America when it was they were they were just about on the verge of civil war and i was following an abc crew and i went down there and i i watched what they did and i asked them questions and that became part of my dis, that's what i wrote my dissertation on and then mm-hmm. my dissertation went into what i call the war book which is a censure of media a century of war i talked about it uh in the beginning and um 
this book won a, won the Alpha Sigma New Book Prize. And as I say, I thought maybe I was going to be done with that. But some of my early dissertation about Central America is in that book that came out in 2007. And so I, I added a lot of stuff as, you know, that was in the mid 80s. And then Throughout the land of the 21st century with with first Desert Storm and the first Gulf War, then the second Gulf War, then, you know, the war on terror, um, all of that kind of fits together. And I and and in between that, from the 80s to the time that book came out, I did a lot of other books and talked about, as you mentioned, the political economy of media and how. Um, mainstream entertainment was being terrifically influenced by sponsors and advertising. And it was, it was dovetailing with the, with the commercials and they began increasingly to call the shots in terms of programming. And um, so it's woven in and out, but I was thinking how that early experience, believe it or not, just going down to El Salvador. I mean, I met the archbishop three weeks before he was killed, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who is oh, now Oh, wow. And, and by the way, just to cut in quickly, there's a very moving film, a fiction film, but based on those events that John Digan directed, right? Right. You met him. I didn't know, and he was one of my heroes, so. Oh, he was very charismatic. Uh, we went oh, into no. the church and we taped a, did a little, little taping, um, and then he would, so it, it was a big church in San Salvador and he opened up the doors and the parishioners walked out and he said he stood there and shook hands with everybody. And he, he was not a tall guy, but his stature and his charisma was really something. And I, I remember walking past him and I'm tall and um, I, I was just so, you could just tell he was a very special person because he was every sermon practically he was telling them to stop killing people and and the and, the uh, cia backed killers who killed him killed nuns at the same time didn't they yes yes the optical brigade and they were also trained at the school of the americas um but that early experience actually gave me an enormous kind of confidence to go to different places and watch how things are filmed and just go there just go to places and insert myself now that worked much better in american than it did in uh in the B with the bbc in guadeloupe because what so that it was a a, a british french co-production which is true but sky uh sky media was was down there and they hired local um French, Af French Caribbean people. So, mm -hmm. so a lot of the people on the um, in the crew on the set were were those kinds of people. But uh, really, what what the French did is allow them to have a um, a a subsidy. They gave them a big subsidy to to yeah. be able to do the yeah. show there. So that's mostly what their involvement is. And of course, the actresses that they and the actors. Um, but the BBC busting onto a set at, and the BBC, they really circled the wagons and they were not at all pleased with me. I can tell you. <laughs> and, um, but when I, when I went down there and, and it was just so interesting to look at this place and how they turned these 4,200 souls into paradise and, and looking at all of the streets and how 
they chose this place. And in a sense, it was this wonderful little town that looks very much like the old Caribbean. And so, you know, they created it and then the BBC filmed it and then people watch it. And it's this it's this give and take between reality and fiction and how and how the fiction affects the way people think about their place and the way that the fiction is using all the creativity that people have put into that little town and its restaurants and its visuals and it's fantastic and it's very interesting yeah i have a terrible crush on the woman who runs the bar you know like really bad Oh, well, Elizabeth Borgine, and you're right, and she's so wonderful. I went to Paris and, and interviewed her um, in Paris in the Select Café on the Avenue Montparnasse. <laughs> she was so friendly and wonderful. I, it's, so you're right to have a crush on her. <laughs> everybody uh, does, just like everybody had a crush on um, Sarah Martin, the Camille. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I probably have a less worthy crush on her. But yeah. in seriousness, I think you've just given us the clue to where your background in international political economy ends up not being a form of left functionalism. And that is because you go out and meet people. Right. Yeah. And you see them at work and you appreciate the labor process of production and the bastard gatekeeping of the bbc <laughs> right it's notorious but you also get to know the people involved and i think that's really important and i think that's something that's lost if one only analyzes text or only analyzes institutions that we really need all three of these spheres in dynamic interplay what's there on a on the screen what's the meaning of it who owns and controls it, but also what's it like to be there when it's made or be there with audiences when they're making sense of it, right? Right. And I think this is one of the clues for getting away from a left functionalism that can come from the doom and gloom of, oh, my God, total concentration, complete state control, surveillance platforms, yada, yada. So. Right. I really think there's a lesson there in your work for all of us. And I wanted to remind you of something. If I haven't invented this, and anybody who knows me well knows that I do make shit up, but generally <laughs> it's done benignly and there's some kernel of truth in it. <laughs> when you were looking for a title for the Century of War, Century of Media book, you were in a bar with Rick Maxwell and me. Have I got oh, that? that? Does this is ring a bell? Right. Toby, I forgot that. And that is so amazing. You came up with a title. This is your title. Well, I think the three of us <laughs> did, but I, I, I can't remember whether it was Rick and me or me or you. But I, remember, I remember saying it and you're saying, oh, look, that's it. <laughs> so I was talking to my editor who who was the, the, the wonderful Peter Lang editor at that point. He went off to Oxford Um but I and so he goes, well, how are we going to punct punctuate that? <laughs> I said, well, I don't know, Damon. <laughs> Toby made it up. We'll have to ask him. He goes, darn that, Toby. <laughs> That's funny. But so it's a century of meeting, comma, a century of war. But you know, punctuation is fun. It's important, and it was an issue on the cover. How oh, they were going to do it. 
It's a great book, uh, and it was a landmark. Speaking of people's origins, can we go back, back, back to California? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, so I graduated having had two very, very different people as my advisors, Herb Schiller as one and Stanley Aronowitz as the other. <laughs> so Herb uh, Schiller, of course, as we know, was very, he was the granddad of political economy. There was many more, of course, um, but I would give him a chapter and he would say, Hmm, Robin, well, people do write this way, I guess. And it was one of them, I give that one to Stanley. He goes, oh, this is this is great. And likewise, I'd give one that talked about ownership to, to Stanley Aronowitz. And he'd go, oh, you know, people do write this kind of thing. <laughs> so that was, those were my two main influences. So you had alternative patriarchies. You had the... <laughs> right. The PE patriarch and the cultural studies sociology patriarch. Well, and then a little bit later when we moved to New York, I knew, of course, Dee Dee Halleck when I was in California. Right, 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 so right. Dee Dee Halleck, the the founder of, Deep, of Paper Tiger Television, the oh. public access producers, and Deep Dish Television, and one of the the early things that deep dish television did so perfectly was shock, shock, shocking and awful, which is based on the shock and awe of the, um, the, the beginning of the war on terror. Yeah. So, so Dee Dee Halleck um, at Fordham press, I published her book, the possible impossibilities of community media. And um, so just when Dee Dee and I started working together, she brought me like reams of, of, of stuff and I would be going through it and I would be pulling out and reorganizing and figuring out how we were going to do a book. And so I think Dee Dee was also a huge influence on my thinking and work as well. And I think Dee Dee was involved, no, in maybe she was the presiding genius with of Herb Schiller reads the New York Times. No? Oh, absolutely. And that's an all-time favorite. So there was a lot of... So you can, you can watch these, these videos are probably on YouTube or somewhere, but it's her literally reading the New York Times on the Metro. Yeah. <laughs> he just brought this big, fat New York Times, flopped it down and said, look at this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's advertising. <laughs> it was a, it's a great sort of Brechtian moment where he's interrupting the ordinary flow of commuter life. But I've heard stories that when Herb would go into undergrad classes at University of California, San Diego, and just pick out that day's New York Times and give an, an interpretation of it. Oh, yeah. And these were apparently electric performances. Oh, absolutely. So when I was, I taught for two quarters at UCSD before I came to New York. And um and Herb came to two of them. And I think Stanley came to one too, but Herb was amazing. He, he had, he, he, he owned the classroom, right? It's like the Shakespearean actors say they own the stage, you know, they're using their body on the stage. That was Herb. He was going across around, uh, he, and he would go, and he would go down the aisles, you know, the student, the student aisles and he'd go, and he'd go, you know, so, well, what do you think of what I just said, right? And they loved him. I mean, he was the most engaging teacher. And 
And I tell you, that's how I learned to teach. I don't know if you, you know, I, I was in a sociology department, actually. So I'm sociology of media. They, and of course, when you and I were in school, um, that is to say, doing our PhDs, they, they, there's no operating instructions on how to be a, a teacher. They, I guess they <laughs> give you a few more, you know, instructions these days, but but watching Herb teach is basically the way I always taught. And and afterwards, we were in my office and Herb goes, God, I'm so, you know, I'm tired. That's tiring. <laughs> I can attest that kind of teaching really makes you tired. It does. It involves so much giving. And sometimes you get something back and sometimes you don't. Because Definitely. you might use that technique as I do, but one doesn't make you Herbert I. Schiller, unfortunately. Speaking of which, in about five days, I'm going to be recording a podcast with Dan, one of his sons. Oh, that's terrific. I'm yeah, really looking terrific. forward to it. Yes, yeah, so great memories, uh, really, really wonderful memories. Would you tell us a little bit about the time at Fordham and for non-US listeners, maybe explaining what Fordham is? Well, Fordham University is a very well-known university in New York City, uh, and it's a Jesuit university. However, it's Jesuit in in design and curriculum, really, because more than in um, economics. Because in the late '60s, to get state and federal money, they they have a private board of directors. Um, but the Jesuit. Jesuits have a long history back to the 16th century of being the the religious organization, the religious that are specialized in teaching and they teach critical thinking. This is not they have a theology department, certainly, uh, but this is critical, critical thinking and really wrapping your head around. And, you know, and, and it, scripture is so complicated. You can come up with so many interpretations. I think that's where they learned it. <laughs> you know, um, anyway. It was founded um, not, it was founded to be an alternative to the Ivy Leagues um, that dominated the, the Northeast um, with very explicitly that were kind of anti-Jewish and anti-Catholic, right? So, uh, so we're talking about Columbia, Harvard, Yale, uh, you know, those, those ones. And um, they, so they, they were there to offer Catholics training um, so that they too could could kind of move up into the policy or, you know, or, or managerial class. I won't say ruling class, <laughs> but um, anyway, that's how Fordham was designed. When I was there, uh, as all universities do, you watch you watch a process of corporatization during that time, of course. And I got there in the very late 80s and uh, and. Uh, so it had its problems. But my role there on campus, I became the director for 12 years of peace and justice studies. And that is based in a Catholic uh, curriculum that is gives preference to the poor and, and liberation theology. And it's very much part of um, some Catholic institutions curriculum. But my job really was to we we had a small uh, unit and it was a certificate. They didn't have its own department, certainly. But my I felt that my job, as I defined it, was to bring bring the position uh, that humanist position 
into from the margins of the university community and pull them in and try to feature them as the center. And so to that end, I was an endless kind of I like to call myself an events coordinator. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. what I did learn is if you say sausages and shrimp, students will come to the talk. So, um, And we had many, many successful events. And for a while, Dan Berrigan was my faculty member. Um, Dan Berrigan was a famous peace activist. He wrote The Trial of the Catonsville Nine. He was a, um, a, 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 you know, a Jeremiah Jesuit who, who was a teacher, educator, um, he went with Howard Zinn to Vietnam and, and he and, was on Nixon's hate list, wasn't he? So was his brother. Right. That's right. And um, and he was finally arrested um, after going doing the Catonsville action. Yeah. So in Catonsville, mm-hmm. Maryland, they pulled about 300 files, uh, draft files out. They took them out of their out of the file cabinets, took them down onto the lot, poured a substance on that was rather like um napalm and burn them 35 years later a cbs camera person pulls out the footage of that event that had never been seen before a a university associated documentary filmmaker did an experimental documentary um uh including that film on the berrigan action and on the 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 trial of the catonsville nine it's a fascinating story but but dan used to teach a class called Poems by Poets in Torment. And uh, and he was a poet and he was he's a great poet. And one time it got it got misprinted in the catalog and it was called Poems by Pets in Torment. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a little um, light view of that. Well, he was one of my heroes when I was a teenager. Uh, young teenager i probably first saw his name i think they were on the cover of time magazine in about 1971 i mean that's how important these guys were as spokespeople against the war and this leads us into the wider question that you've touched on of the society of jesus and its role in social justice and in a sense it's a bit like a corollary of some elements of judaism where critical thinking and learning are prioritized even if they may have a hermeneutic grounding in the reading and interpretation of religious tracts or documents more generally, and a a history of learning that is open to difference and disagreement. And this is why, of course, the Jesuits regularly face threats of excommunication, depending on who's running the curia (laughs) in the papers. The Jesuit community on Fordham, many of them, we're very afraid of Dan Berrigan, of course. And um, so sure, yeah. it's not a monolithic society. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not testing they're all radical, but there are, it's always had that tendency. Oh, it absolutely yeah. does. Absolutely. Um, in, in a credible and significant ways. Well, you know, I was at uh, Rabbis for a Ceasefire a couple of weeks ago down in, down in the Columbus Circle. And the ways the rabbis talked about the, the meaning behind lighting each of the candles on the menorah um, were very similar in philosophy to to uh, the 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 preference for the poor, the 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 way your life becomes better uh, by giving to others. 
mm-hmm. um, that you can't really fulfill your own humanity unless, in fact, you do help others. These these things really came through in the, the speaking of the rabbis. And that's why there's so much um, uh, unity in that kind of position. And, you know, uh, I personally am not a, a believing person. Um, when Herb, when I told Herb Schiller my 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 I was going to take the job at Fordham, he said, "Robert, you might have to wear a uh, you know one of those costumes and tie a rope around your waist." And I said, <laughs> "Herb, I, I don't think it's like that." <laughs> he was such a funny guy, and um, he said, "Okay, that's a good first job." Well, I stayed there my whole co- political career. I mean, uh, career and uh, academic career and uh, for a, a number of different reasons but um i i did find a home there i was i was once at the first j meeting i went to of of campuses in you know just in the our tri-state area and i i noticed i was with a whole bunch of nuns and i said what is a nice socialist feminist girl like me doing with all of you do-gooding nuns and they said i literally said they said Okay, you can be with us. And I said, okay. I said, all right. So I got used to it slowly. (laughs) Nice. Well, it's interesting, I think, that whilst you published a lot during your teaching, research, administration career at Fordham, you've really published a heck of a lot towards the end of that time and since. It's almost as though there were things that were bursting forth that just needed a little more opportunity in time terms to dedicate to bringing them to fruition. And we should say that with reference to the Daniel Berrigan, you were very much involved in the publication of that book, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, talking about how old we were with Dan Berrigan and in, in, in our early careers, I had the the immense uh, just joy and privilege of of interviewing Dar Williams. Dar Williams, the singer who wrote a book about, uh, who wrote a song that is featured in the beginning of the my edition uh, of our edition of the trial of the Catonsville nine. Mm. And I, and I had figured it out before I got there and I interviewed and I said, Dar, you're kind of young. How old must you have been when, Mm. when this book, when when this trial happened or this book about, you know, this, this, it wasn't the real trial, of course. Um, And she goes, I was two, (laughs) but I was two years old, but my, but my, parents really liked this um they had they 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 were a fan of dan berrigan so they i don't know if they were catholic but they were certainly peace peace activists so that was dar williams and in terms of writing um you know i don't know if we're if we're we're into looking back on our early decisions in our careers and saying what 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 did we what did we really want to do? You know, I, I stayed in a, up in up in the tower uh, of academe or in the groves of academe for so long. Um, I think, well, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, and and so when I stopped teaching, I go, ah, I can be a writer. Um, and I and also it was very liberating, relevant to what you were talking about earlier, Toby, when you talked about you know leftist determinant uh determinacy is like you know most of i think what we have to do is criticize the media i mean i i'm a media critic uh, but when when i finally got out of of teaching i said i'm going to do this that i want to do 
there's a lot of joy in this. And I'm going to go down to, uh, well, a place that I like to think of as paradise. <laughs> I'm going to hang out and I'm going to interview the stars and I'm going to do this book. And um, so that was a wonderful break, but a, too small of a break between being a, a, a critical writer. And I find myself now being a writer, but I'm I'm writing for fair. So everything is a media criticism. I've, I've written, um, this is the fifth, uh, media news abuse chapter that I've written for the Project Censored State of the Free Press annual book. Um, so, so this this time will be my fifth, you know, my my fifth contribution to that book. And, you know, looking at an entire year and coming up with the most relevant things and a cogent media analysis that tries to understand them. These things they take a little time. <laughs> so. Um, I for wasn't sure. able to do those kinds of things. Without you should say, so that. FAIR stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Right. And it is the progressive answer to this awful thing called AIM, Accuracy in Media, right. which is not only scandalously right-wing and stupid, but doesn't actually do research. Whereas FAIR does lots of really interesting research and brings information to right. us. Uh, in yeah. easily digested form, but also has bravura opinion pieces often connected there too. Uh, it's a wonderful resource if you're interested in understanding the U.S. bourgeois media. Uh, it's a fantastic resource, no? Yes, yes, and uh, yeah, they do long term, like months of content analysis for a particular topic and you really can tease out who the sources were and and come up with the, the absolute themes of what of what they uh how they went wrong and, and of course you you compare it to it to these this, this guidepost which is our idea of a free press and, and what it might look like and and what it possibly should look like in a democracy and uh it's a good model it's, it's a good um format so speaking of models rob and i had one more question for you if i may and then i'd like to throw it open to you to add anything or maybe subtract something from what you've already said what we've already discussed does that sound okay sure so my question is this <clears throat> hard to believe when you can see me and when you've known me for a long time but i'm a 25 year old starting my doctorate and i want to be a critical media scholar like robin anderson like Herb Schiller, like Anita Schiller, like Dan Schiller, etc. What are the things that I need to learn in your eyes? What are the things that I should dedicate myself to being able to do, to learning how to do? Well, if I look back at the way I did things when I got into graduate school, I mean, undergrad was was an important experience, but I didn't really just read everything until I became a grad student. And then I just read everything. I had a very, I, I, it allowed me to have a very broad foundation in social, uh, the social and political forces that shape the world and go back to having a foundation in social thought and theory and practice. Um, that I think in most PhD, certainly MA programs and in many PhD programs in communications, you don't have that broad understanding of 
how society works and 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 how media in influences that. So I think that's a good start. And I think you it's it's very hard to talk about it now, Toby, because I think the situation in academia uh has just become much more constrained than it was. And certainly when I was at UC Irvine, um, where we had more of an open curriculum. Uh, and I mostly media and community and messaging principles are things that are taught. But I, as I say, I can't do it without understanding the embeddedness is what, of what you talked about, the embeddedness of these media communications within uh, uh, the economic and, and political economy. Of course, economics isn't by itself. It always has to be understood with the, with the politics of what's shaping the economy. Um, and certainly now, if we're talking about the 21st century and there's a new student, I would pick a topic that is important to you. And I've always told my students, and this is what I did. And I think that our longevity in being able to do this is that you have to find what you're passionate about. And I mean, it's kind of funny for me to say that because I'm a very generalized media critic. Um, but but my work kind of coalesces around a kind of humanism um, and all in which we we've got to find uh, ways to talk about all of the frames and ways of thinking about the world that aren't offered to us in media Um and if you stay only within within a, a very narrowly defined media to critique it and you don't go outside of that to see this vast world that we're not talking about, um, I think there there has to be this way to uh, to find something you're very passionate about that has a vision. Um, and that's the only thing inadequately as it is that I could say. <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful advice and wonderfully put. So next thing is to invite you to talk about something we haven't really touched on or where you want to add something to what we have discussed. Well, if we're going to talk about teaching, um, uh, it, it, as, as we have already talked about, it, I think you agreed that, that we don't have a lot of instruction teaching. Um, I think teaching certainly for me was a calling. Uh, I want, I really wanted to do it. I, I found, I, I was always comfortable in front of a class. I was always comfortable in making them get around in a circle too, you know, all of the different structures. Of course, we reproduce, of course, the, the, uh, the hierarchic relationships in a classroom, but you, you've got to get around that. But I think there is a role for, uh for guidance um for for directing young intellects into ways and trying to help them figure out the world i think the world is so um problematic to anyone who is young and is looking at a future in this world um i think when i was young you know, there was a threat of nuclear war. There was this, there was that, but nothing like what young people are experiencing today with the uh, the constant uh, economic hardships of inequality, the the 
absolute red alert on the environment and what's and and climate change um constant wars living in constant wars the i think the important thing is to is to figure out how students how to give them a vision of what they can do to change the world and do it within a critical perspective um that's analytical that that helps that helps them understand and help and and will help the world understand how the world works and how we can change it for the better and i think there's no better way to position yourself to do that than in a media a capacity for those who want to learn how to do the media it's creating and it's creating and looking for alternative messages for for people who want to talk about the media it's it's understanding how this whole this this whole public sphere is created by our talk around media and and how we can do that better to tell the narratives that need to be told now the narratives about peace and the narrative the narratives about environmental action and uh, all of that stuff again wise and wonderful words robin and they really resonate with a number of people roughly of our vintage that i've been speaking to over the last couple of weeks who talk about the dynamic of hope and despair and who won't let go of hope, but it's sometimes almost despairing for them to do so, to hold on to hope. So one thing I'd like to propose to you, uh, just for you to think about, is that, and I've been saying this to a number of guests, if you ever felt like organising a roundtable of activists, intellectuals, whatever, to chat about peace issues, for example, or whatever, in the context of this podcast, it'd be great to film something on Zoom, provided we can get the timing right. Robin and I had a an unsuccessful first attempt to record because of, you know, what is the time difference and where are you and where am I? And is it summertime and is it not? And all the rest of it. We sorted it out on this occasion. Uh, something where we could chat, maybe a group of people in New York, uh, but maybe elsewhere too. Have a think about it. If something comes to mind where you think that you'd like to do it and you might have some friends or colleagues or younger people who'd be interested just to try it out, yeah? That sounds like a great idea, yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you very much, Professor Anderson. As I said, it's always wonderful to talk. It's been too long since we've done so and it's a real privilege to sit down and chat with you. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Toby. It's been very very great.